Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Life Radio. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but have been a photographer for over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say that I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing, illustrating, and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me. Each week we are inspired by an image of the cross and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's essay is The Dispensation. The photo accompanies devotional is a horizontal image of the cross, which is not that common. 95% of my crosses are vertical, or some would say a portrait orientation. Now, the cross is silhouetted, or it's a silhouette of a cross, and it appears only in the lower 30% of the frame. Under the left wing of the cross is a dramatic breaking through of the sun through the dark clouds with golden rays emanating down to the landscape. Now, this image reminds me of a poem by John R. Stott that says, The gospel is the good news of mercy to the undeserving. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. I also resonate with a hymn by Isaac Watts entitled, At the Cross, which goes like this, Alas! And did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there, by faith, I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Thy body slain, sweet Jesus, thine, and bathed in its own blood, where the firm mark of wrath divine, his soul in anguish stood. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in, when Christ the mighty maker died, for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Wow. It amazes me that a song like At the Cross, written over 300 years ago, before the American Revolution is still impacting lives with its inspiring words to this day. 
It makes me think you never know the lasting effect something you do to share the gospel at this side of glory. Lord willing, this devotional on Isaac Watts' hymn will bear fruit for years to come. We live in an amazing age with technology so accessible, technologies to create and listen to devotionals like this. For example, my local radio program has the potential to reach tens of thousands of people live, but by sharing the content on a podcast, which was remarkably easy, has the potential to reach hundreds of thousands of people. Really. And just to think that someone in Korea, Nigeria, the Philippines, Germany, Guatemala, or South Africa can be listening to this podcast boggles my mind. Look at Micah, who was a prophet, who was striving to share the love of God to people. He writes in Micah 7, 18 to 19, quote, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This scripture is where the concept of a sea of forgetfulness comes from, a destination for our sins, far enough away that they can no longer affect us. When we trust in Christ through his sacrificial death and resurrection, we come under a new perspective in God's perception of us. Although our sins still cause pain and create consequences, our salvation is secure. Being susceptible to committing sins does not mean we are vulnerable to lose God's gift of grace. Our salvation was provided by the free will sacrifice of Jesus and through our accepting his atoning work on the cross. It is wholly an act of grace, God's purposeful disposition to all mankind. Micah was prophesying about the future to people who had wondered if God had forgotten them, was still living under the old paradigm. Jesus, the Messiah, brought God's new plan for forgiveness, and he brought that plan to fruition on the cross. No Old Testament sacrifice or Jewish laws could be followed in accordance worthy enough of the holiness of God. We are told in the New Testament, all fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. Nobody can meet the law. Now the entirety of scripture points to Jesus as the Messiah and his saving sacrifice on account of all mankind. One of the disciples of Jesus, Peter, said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 This admonition points to the disposition of God, the Father who gave his Son as a sacrifice, who, after his resurrection, gave us the Holy Spirit. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that affects our disposition, which can benefit the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Look at Saul from the synagogue, who admitted that in himself there was no reason for boasting. It was Jesus who brought him out of darkness, placing him into God's family. God changed his name from Saul to Paul, and since that day on the Damascus Road, he was used in a powerfully productive way. However, it was God 
who had made him the apostle he came to be. Paul acknowledged that apart from God's favor, he would not have been able to accomplish anything. It was God's son Jesus who gave him the ability to endure the hardships and nourish the early church and preach the gospel to the farthest corners of the known world at that time. It was Paul who said, Let the same disposition be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5 How do we share in the disposition of God's grace? By asking Jesus to dwell in you and for you to abide in his light and love and to reflect that light and love of Jesus to those around you who are in need of this grace today. And remember, while being in incarnation, Jesus had to live as one of us and overcome the temptations of this world in order to earn the right to become our ultimate sacrifice. And, of course, the resurrection and ascension would not have happened without his sacrificial death on the cross. It is our bridge over the chasm between us and God, or better phrased, from God to us, restoring the right relationship lost at the fall of the Garden of Eden. So let's circle back to the hymn. In the first line, it says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. To gain insight into Isaac's thinking, I had to consult our friends, Miriam and Webster, who define alas as a word used to express unhappiness, pity, or concern. Hmm. I am glad that I looked it up because that line makes more sense in the light of Watt's question. Isaac asked, did my Savior bleed? Well, some may respond with, of course he bled. (laughs) He bled a lot. Jesus had been whipped 39 times with a metal-laced whip which ripped skin and meat from more than just his back. The sides and the whip would go to the front of the body as well before the guard yanked it back out. He had portions of his beard pulled out, a crown of thorns pressed into his head, had spikes hammered through his wrists and feet, and then a spear driven through his side. So yes, it is safe to assume that Jesus bled a lot. But note, Isaac did not refer to him as Jesus, but as Savior, the one who saves Isaac Watt's soul. Through all that I just mentioned, plus the it-is-finished moment, so in reflection, Isaac is not asking if Jesus bled, but that he is sad that Jesus had to bleed, and that he is sad he had to bleed so much to become Isaac's Savior. The second line asks, And did my sovereign reign? Again, at first glance, it seems he is asking if Jesus died. But in the light of what we learned in the first line, when he asked if Jesus bled, we can deduce that what he's really asking is why. Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. In every way, the primacy is his. So why would the prince of the kingdom of heaven, or as Pilate had inscribed on the sign on the cross, quote, king of the Jews, or as referred to in the epistles as king of kings, have to die like this. Hmm. The third line asks, would he devote that sacred head? Again, I consult Miriam and Webster, who says that devote means to give over to a cause or commit by a solemn act with solemn meaning or a religious sanction, as in a solemn oath. And sacred being defined as holy or divine and head as the president of a company, the coach or owner of a sports team. 
or similar to how the Catholic Church views the Pope as the head of the Church. So if we rephrase this line, it can go like this. The head of our faith, completely holy, committed the ultimate sacrifice by giving himself away. In this line, I get the sense that he sees Jesus as high priest and king, giving himself up. The fourth line asks, for such a worm as I? Now this is interesting. Why the metaphor of a worm? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is the reference in Isaiah 41.14 when God called Jacob a worm. Worms are small and worms are lowly. Worms have no eyes. Their existence is one of constantly digging, eating, and casting over and over again. But I'm intrigued by the potential connection to the name and life of Jacob. His name means supplanter, defined as someone or something taking the place of another as through force, scheming, strategy, or craftiness. Jacob's stealing of the birthright and blessing caused him to live as a fugitive for more than two decades. Maybe Isaac was simply commenting that we are all supplanters to a point, looking out for our own interests, our own needs, at all costs, ignoring God's will and ignoring that we need forgiveness. Then comes the chorus. And line one, I resonate when he says, at the cross, at the cross. I relate to this because during the time I shot the cross upon that hill, I'd often end up back at that white cross over and over again for over two and a half years. So much so that many years later, I can still imagine myself at the cross in my meditative prayer times, a practice that I started up on that hill below that white wooden cross. And I probably will for the rest of my life. And in these dark times we live in, maybe it's a good practice to try. Carve out a quiet place and a quiet time and imagine yourself at the cross, talking to Jesus like the good thief did. Or at least keep the cross of Christ as a core part of your spiritual daily journey. Why? Because in line two of the chorus, Isaac tells us that it was at the cross that he first saw the light. Funny thing, the phenomena of darkness is that it amplifies the light. I understand this is counterintuitive, but the darker the space is, the brighter the smallest of light appears. Jesus was the light of the world, and yet he allowed himself apparently to be extinguished. In hindsight, we know that Jesus then went to the depths of Hades to reclaim the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Oh, how bright the Spirit of Christ must have appeared in that satanic dimension. It must have been a blinding light. But bringing it back to what Isaac was getting at, I am reminded of what the novelist Ethan Wharton wrote. There are two ways of spreading light, to be a candle or the mirror that reflects it, like the moon reflecting the sun. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8:12. In our relationship with Jesus, he is the candle. We are the mirror that reflects his light to the world. The deeper the darkness, the brighter we shine to those we interact with. In the third chorus line, Isaac shares how the burden of my heart rolled away. Now, burdens can be defined and originated in so many ways. It could be things done to us, like when I was neglected and physically abused to the point of being hospitalized, or when a young 
Annie Chapman, an author, was sexually assaulted by the farmhand the family had hired, or my friend Steve, whose psyche was scarred because of the emotional abuse of his stepfather. Or it could be burdens we bring on ourselves, things that we have done wrong, which results in guilt that eats us up. Or maybe something a wrongs, plural, we have done to someone else. And the regret robs us of our peace. At the cross, through the sacrifice Jesus made, it provided Jesus more than just the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Jesus also has the ability to wash away the burdens of our guilt, shame, and deep hurt. It is a good thing that Jesus does windows. (laughs) Hallelujah. Because... When the thick film of guilt and hurt is cleaned off the mirror of our soul, Jesus is able to see us more clearly, and we are finally able to fully reflect the spectrum of the light of Jesus. And then we see the effect of this to Isaac in the fourth and final line of the course. And now I am happy all the day. Ah, joy. One of the immediate and long-lasting benefits of having your burdens lifted. One can see a great example of this on Christmas Day for Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas Carol story. When he awakes and realizes he has had a second chance to right past wrongs and to change the future of what might have been. It was not an intellectual change, but a life-changing paradigm shift that changes the perspectives of, of a person's life and how one's life interacts with those around them. My mother, a rage-filled prisoner to nicotine and heroin, had a 180-degree change and was filled with an undeniable, overflowing, and infectious joy. Some people had no idea how to deal with her because her joy overwhelmed them. Now, did it mean that her life and her new existence was immediately full of roses and rainbows? No, it was full of tough challenges, disappointments, and trials. But she always saw past all of them, never dwelling on them, but overcoming them joyfully. And when you keep your focus on God, the size of the hurdles in your way shrinks in size as you pass over, under, or around them. To be clear, some like Erwin Lutzer and John Michael Talbot had a gap between having their sins forgiven and when they had a tangible personal event with Jesus that resulted in a flood of joy. And through all the things that I've been through, I have a happy, grateful, and peaceful disposition all day, every day, knowing that God is involved in the affairs of my life. Now we look at the first line of stanza two. Was it for crimes that I have done? I think the answer is yes. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I am reminded of the good thief who said to the bad thief, We deserve our punishment because of the crimes we committed, but this man is innocent. And then he turns to Jesus and asks Jesus to... Remember him this day in his paradise. We should all have this humility, daily asking Jesus to have mercy on us. The second line seems to be a continuation of the first, as in, was it for crimes that I have done that he groaned upon the tree? Again, from our biblical literacy, the answer is yes. The Bible says that Jesus took all the hurt, all the shame, and all the sins onto himself. The one groaning that always intrigues me is when Jesus groans, I thirst. This can be a subject of one's meditation, or a whole book could be written on those two words. Mother Teresa, whose entire life of service was underpinned by her contemplation of what Jesus was saying when Jesus groaned, I thirst. 
in that he thirsted for you to be reconciled with God. The next lines, three and four of stanza two, are best combined. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. A major leg of the tripod-like plan of salvation is that God became man on this plane. And since Jesus lives with us and among us, he has immense pity for us. He understands the plight, our hunger, our tiredness, pain, grief, temptations that we face. And he, he did it knowing that the plan was not just the impending crucifixion, but that he'd be a bridge of joy and eternal life out of death and despair. Moreover, God, who sacrificed his own son to provide this path of salvation, loved us so much that he gives us the choice to love him back or not. That is unmeasurable love. Skipping past the repeat of the chorus, we find ourselves at stanza three. And again, we need to combine lines one and two, as well as three and four. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shuts its glories in. Hmm. I had to dwell on that one for a bit, and I simply need more context, so I move on to 3 and 4. When Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. Ah, I see it when I combine all four at once. As I alluded to earlier, when Jesus, with Father God from before and during the creation of this world, gave himself up as compensation or propitiation for the debt of humankind's sin, descending later into Hades, meaning the light of this world subjected himself to the darkest of darkness. And for three days, the Son of God, aka the morning star, was hidden in Lucifer's realm. And then when the darkest of darkness surrounded him, the light was amplified with exponential amplification, while all of creation waited for the Son to consummate his Father's will emerging through the full electromagnetic spectrum of resurrection, bringing forth the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Hallelujah. This takes us past another course to the fourth stanza. And I think we're at the point of grouping the stanzas into two lines at a time. This is because line one and two states, Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. To me, this is not just the heart of the gospel, but also the backstory of the human race on earth. It is a connection between the first Adam and the second Adam, meaning after Adam agreed with Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, he not only knew he was naked, but he also felt guilt and shame for the first time. And the shame, now knowing what he had done, drove him to hide from God. Isaac is saying that with the appearance of the cross of Christ and the power of his sacrifice, the right relationship has been restored. Line three of the fourth stanza elaborates on the effect of the cross appearing in that it dissolves my heart and thankfulness. To me, this means a gratitude so great that it completely humbles you. So many have an overinflated sense of identity, puffed up pride, and exaggerated ego. But for those of us who've had a personal experience at the foot of the cross, the focus turns from internal vanity to the savior of our soul. Line four then says, and melt mine eyes to tears. The emotion of being truly forgiven and deeply healed is very hard to contain and very hard to explain. Very hard. 
I've cried from time to time when being blessed by God, when being touched by God, but one that still I can't shake is, is a video I created, a video that my f- friend made, a, a slideshow of the crosses in this collection, put to the song, I Wonder As I Wander, sung by Barbara Streisand, and I've watched it countless times, and I don't remember ever being able to get through a viewing of it where I don't begin to tear up. The images take me back in time to the memories and conversations and the time I spent with God up on that hill. Which finally, after the last chorus, takes us to lines one and two of stanza five, which states, But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. In this phrase, Isaac is confessing his realization that there is absolutely nothing he can ever do to pay back what he has received. But it is a good realization as it leads Isaac to state that, Here, Lord, I give myself away. This is all I can do. And Isaac is 100% correct. All we can give him is 100% of our life. And this, I believe, is the crux of the gospel. I had an epiphany that the message of the cross is to share the message of the cross. In this devotional, I have a related epiphany, which is that if Jesus gave his all for me and us, then I and we should give all I and we have to him, to Jesus, and to all others in our circle of influence, in the circle of people we come into contact with, either long-term, like our family, friends, and some co-workers, and those that divine appointments allow us to meet, even if it is at the checkout line at the grocery store. The Bible says the Lord wishes that none should perish, so everyone we interface with is one of them. Our words and actions inspired by love for them, allowing the love of Jesus to flow through us, may seem inconsequential. However, every seed in the ground is benefited by the daily nourishment of spiritual water for its roots. Our interactions, if we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us to them, might be the only watering of those seeds of salvation planted by someone else long ago. So what do you say, my brothers and sisters? Has this devotional given you a fresh perspective on your salvation and the commission to share it with others? I pray that it does, and that much fruit will be brought forth by your new intentions and actions of sharing God's love through you. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program heard every week here on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this devotional's image, The Dispensation, along with other cross-pirations and verse-pirations, then check out robholt.inspires on Instagram. If you'd like to see the Cross collection and products, hear the other Cross podcast, then log on to RobbieHolt.com. That is R-O-B-B-Y-H-O-L-T.com.